You are listening to the Enormo Cast. I don't know what's happening in your neck of the woods, but out here in the great American West, it's the start of desert crack season, which means two things. The bros are charging up their Bluetooth speakers, and people are wondering where the hell they're going to get enough cams. But Black Diamond has your back. On top of the heap are the Camelot Ultralights. Cams so fleet that Elon Musk once shot one into space strapped to a bottle rocket. And then there's the venerable C4, the cam that still rules the creek. And legend has it, if you whisper Camelot, Camelot, Camelot into a mirror while holding a red C4 to your forehead, the location of the easiest for you 12 minus will be revealed. And don't forget the dinky Camelot X4s and X4 offsets. But do forget about clean underwear if you start whipping on the .1 in sandstone. But wherever your crack reveals itself, remember, BD has you covered with the sweetest cams known to man. Check them all out at blacktimeandequipment.com or your favorite local shop. Would your neck hurt playing someone else's project? Does your partner get in way over his head even on the warm-ups? Does the phrase, I'll just do this move one more time, make your eyeballs spin? Then let belay specs fight for you. When my boyfriend started falling lower and lower on his project, Belay Specs saved my neck and got me a new boyfriend. Belayer neck pain, also known as BNP, can interfere with work, play, family, and snapping your head around at the gym to check out those abs. And you have rights, which are being crushed every time your partner yells take. So if your neck has been injured in an epic belay session, go to belayspecs.com to see if you qualify for a pair of belay specs and to get what you deserve. Entry Normacast at checkout for a discount. Belay Specs is not licensed to give legal advice to anyone. Results may vary by steepness. If Belay Specs cause you to trip, fall down, run into a door, nausea, dry mouth, you're probably too high to climb to begin with. Alright, we good? We done here? Does anybody want to get a beer? We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing it at? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's not a town. That's a big nice. place. You sold that out. I'll see. We really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Normacast. This is your host, Chris Kloos. It is about 11 o'clock here in Colorado on March 19th, 2018. On today's show, American Alpine Club CEO, Phil Powers. And I want to thank the American Alpine Club again for having me out to the Boston Benefit Dinner. It was great to be out there, see how things work on the inside of the club. We managed to sit down with Phil out there between all the various responsibilities that he had. And um, had a great time. And, you know, we talk about this in the interview. And 
the history of the American Alpine Club, even where it combines with my history as a climber, um, has changed a lot. I was pretty ambivalent about it when I started climbing. It seemed like kind of the old guy's club and didn't really have much to do with me as a rock climber. It seemed to be all about the big mountains, which I sort of had dreams of getting to, but um, as a dirtbag climber with no history, I didn't feel like I was involved in that level of alpinism and of mountain climbing that American Alpine Club seemed to be involved in. But as me and Phil get to in this interview, uh, a lot of that's changed. They've really opened their ranks and their ideas and their philosophies to try to include all climbers. And I really think that the organization now is kind of a mandatory membership sort of thing. If for no other reason, then you get some rescue insurance, which, you know, can come in handy out there in the world that we operate in. So I think that along with your Access Fund membership, American Alpine Club membership should be just part of the uh, the cost of doing business out there as a climber. And besides, if you're buying gear, you can quickly make up the dues and discounts and uh, break even and still have that insurance and get the Alpine Journal and get the Accidents American Mountaineering. No, it's called the Accidents of North American Climbing now. See what they're doing there? Little shift. Check it out at AmericanAlpineClub.org. See what they got going on. Maybe apply for a grant. Might give you some money to go on a climbing trip. Right there. Boom. All right. That's really all I got going on right now. Just uh, some climbing outdoors because it's quite nice here in Colorado right now. Good season. Some skiing still happening, but people are getting on their mountain bikes in the lowlands. There's some ice climbing to be had, but of course the crags are starting to open up and dry off in the sun. So nice time of year, March. Spring break everywhere, so you got to kind of hide from the masses this time of year around the West, but uh, yeah, it certainly is nice out there. Hope you guys are having fun out there, and I hope you enjoy this one with Phil Powers. Now, we all know that Sportiva makes the best climbing shoes this side of the Parthenon, but it turns out that even the most dedicated dirtbags have to spend an ungodly amount of time on the flats among the sad, lost, lowland civilians. And that's where Sportiva's approach shoes come in. Legends like the Boulder X can comfortably scramble you up slabs, boulders, easy pitches until the big guns come out. And for when you're not actually in the mountains, well, as you peruse the hemp milk selection at the whole paycheck, nothing says, don't fuck with me, I've climbed El Cap, like a brightly colored pair of TX3s that are relentlessly scuffing the floor. Bellied up to the bar for that post-near-death experience beer, let them know those gobies didn't come from labor with a pair of impossibly lightweight TX2s. After all, isn't the day-to-day drudgery just a protracted scramble to the next climb? Whether you're actually at the cliff or just standing up in your best friend's wedding, you better be ready in a pair of multi-sport approach shoes from Sportiva. Within climbing, you've, you've got these three, it seems like, pillars or bases. Okay. I kind know of who you are. Um, I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think with the AAC, you've also got, you know, a fairly... Uh, concerted effort and history around public policy work, right. you know, which is it's embedded in that mm-hmm. uh, American Alpine Club world. But I was involved in public policy back at the National Outdoor Leadership School and working for the working as a board member at the AMGA too. How long have you been at the AAC in any capacity, but also as I've only been director? in one capacity, okay. which originally was called executive director and now is titled CEO. Same job, thirteen years now. Okay. Long time. Yeah, a long time. Longer than I thought it would be. Oh, really? Yeah. 
What did you imagine? I I thought if I was doing a good job, mm-hmm. that I'd be there about ten years. Oh, okay. Um, so you know, it takes. On borrowed time. Then. I'm living on yeah. borrowed time. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. The right. first years were difficult. Uh, the club was small, um, and even shrinking. Mm-hmm. Not particularly relevant. Uh, we were saying goodbye to a lot of members, and so those early years were were difficult years. So let's see, so 13 years 2005. Ago. Okay. Yeah. You know, let's get into a little bit of the history. That's a fine place to start. I want to talk about your personal climbing. Sure. Some, some of your other stuff before this, but uh, we're here at the AAC Annual Benefit Dinner, mm-hmm. um, so it's a perfect place to start. Um, you know, we just watched a big presentation on K2 on the 1978 expedition talking they were talking about how it was sponsored or, or developed or whatever by the American Alpine Club. Mm-hmm. How long has it been in existence? The club? Yeah. The club uh, was started in 1902. Oh. So quite a while ago. <laughs> okay, cool. In that capacity, it's been, I mean, it's usually associated in all those years with the big expedition climbing. Um, yeah, I mean, for a long portion of the club's history, it really did three things. Okay. It housed a library which is now grown to be really the world's most uh, established mountaineering library. It created the American Alpine Journal, mm-hmm. and that publishing function has grown and shrunk over the years, but we also pre- publish accidents in North American climbing. And then the third thing it did for many, many years was endorse expeditions. Okay. Sometimes that came with funding. Sometimes it did not. But in order to get a permit in Pakistan or Nepal, uh, okay. for decades, you needed the endorsement of your nation's Alpine Club. Okay. That's no longer true. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it, it is like there is that tradition of these clubs, and you're right. To me, I mean, they've they've gone on. Uh, I think the tradition is longer and more continuing in, in other countries mm-hmm. um, in terms of the Alpine Club. But when you said endorsement, I d- it did make me think like, you know, oh, you got like the blessing of the, you did. the men on high, but it also served this function of... of there was an of, expeditions right, committee. Right. It would receive applications. Those expeditions that looked like they were well put together would get a letter of endorsement that was necessary to get a permission, mm-hmm. a permit, mm-hmm. in Nepal or Pakistan. Right. Okay. And... So you mentioned you started in 2005 Mm -hmm. um, at a place where you, it wasn't very big, it was shrinking, you were losing members, and obviously you wrote out that transition, and I think it's obviously much stronger now, which you can be proud of. It's a lot of fun these days. Yeah. So tell me about that, you know, if it was a crisis or if it was just a trend or... Tell me about those moments and kind of what you saw and, and, and what, what you were facing at that point. I, th- I really think um, when I was hired, mm-hmm. I was sort of uh, charged with two goals. One was to build a museum. And the other was to turn the club around. <laughs> no big deal. And uh, the, building the museum, which was wonderful and well-funded and a beautiful outcome, really did nothing to turn the club around. So you had this several million dollar project mm-hmm. that had to be accomplished really sort of to get that done and out of the way before you could really turn and before I could really turn my attention to the business itself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we do approach it as a business. I do. It's really a benefits and services business at at its core. Mm-hmm. We provide benefits and services to climbers that are otherwise hard to obtain. 
benefits like rescue benefits. You fall somewhere on the planet Earth, we come get you, get you the, to the nearest hospital. Uh, uh, benefits like gear discounts, benefits like lodging, benefits like the books we produce, mm-hmm. uh, the information that we supply. So those are benefits and services that people buy with their dues. Right. It's a transactional beginning, if you will. So the first order of business was to fix that business. The benefits weren't that great or not as good as they could be. So we entered into a strategic thinking uh, that allowed us to improve the benefits, improve the marketing, and turn that membership growth around or shrinkage around and we began to grow uh, and but it wasn't until about 2010 or 11 when we really started to get good at that mm-hmm. and since that time uh, the club has pretty much tripled in size right well you know as, a, as somebody who uh, I started climbing in 1989 so you know well before that and and you meant you said the word relevant mm-hmm. and and that has you know as, as I've watched the AAC exist or first became aware of it, and then um, you know I'm actually sort of involved. I've been to Craig and Classics in the last few years and things like that. I've seen it too because I, I just always and I know I'm I'm in you know I'm not alone when when I was 20 or 25. It it seemed like this thing of you know the old generation, the expedition climber generation, uh, even like this event with black ties and stuff, which I realize it's is not now, black tie. You're right. I know it's not. Thank God. Not black tie. Uh, and no one will ever be turned away from the yeah. American Alpine club because of what they're wearing. Okay, cool. No, well, the truth be told is I, I, I was like, I thought it was. And then I actually, I literally Googled pictures cause I'm going to the dinner tonight. Yeah. I Googled pictures just to make sure, I was like, all right, I, I don't want to be the worst dressed there, but I, I don't really have the capacity. And really, you know, of course, like the Tommy Caldwell's and everybody else were in, you know, typical button-down, like, uh, they plaid were nice, shirts. They wore nice yeah. suits a couple yeah, years ago. Yeah, and there's some some yeah. guys in suits and stuff. And so I'll fall in the middle somewhere. But uh, but anyway, the, the notion, and I know you, 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 you remember this as well, was that, like, it had nothing to do with me as, like, a dirtbag rock climber. It had nothing to do with me as a boulderer. It had nothing to do with me as a sport climber. Uh, you know, that was a big, the, like, a lot of alpine clubs of the world, you know, there was a point at which they sort of publicly came out against those sorts of things. Um so, yeah, I mean, what, what was that in your mind in 2005? Maybe it wasn't as, as you know, strident as it had been. Um, but was that the kind of thing you, you think you were facing in terms of trying to get people to think about it differently? Well, I think the, the relevancy, relevancy word shows up in two ways. One is to, to deliver on that business proposition, mm-hmm. to actually give people great benefits for their dues. Mm-hmm. So that's... That's the core business proposition. But the other is what we would call mission delivery, Mm -hmm. to deliver on our mission to support climbers. Mm -hmm. And that we can only do with sort of the revenue you need to run a public policy program, Mm -hmm. send people to D.C. to negotiate for fixed anchors in wilderness, uh, send people to Yosemite to negotiate for a better Camp 4, build an education program so that we can start to certify amateur instructors around the country, volunteer instructors around the country so that they can do a better job. Those are the kinds of things that are real mission delivery uh, issues that we could only do after we fixed the business. Sure. And honestly, you may come for the benefits, 
But those benefits really only have a value when you need them, when you want them, while you're active. But it's the it's the community of people that you find at the American Alpine Club and what we can do together to make our world better that keeps people involved. So it's a it's it's kind of both about attracting people, mm-hmm. but then having a compelling enough community that you want to stay yeah. and participate right. and volunteer and give of your time, like at the stewardship projects at the Crag and Classics and the volunteerism that supports those events. Um, the trick, you know, you talked about elder climbers patting each other on the back and dressing mm-hmm. up. Uh, the trick is being relevant to the sport climber and the trad climber and the rock climber living in his van or a tent and yet at the same time right. not abandoning our sure. history. Right. Right? We want both and, mm-hmm. uh, not either or. Right. And I think the, the, the trick or the moment was when we as an organization were able to admit that the American Alpine Club is about all climbers, mm-hmm. every ilk. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we gave the Underhill Award to John Gill, a boulderer, when we started to welcome high-achieving rock climbers into our ranks, mm-hmm. and when we recognized that the superset term is climbing, not mountaineering, right. that climbing is the all-encompassing term that we now need to sort of embrace and welcome people through uh, from every walk of climbing. Well, cool. So let me ask you a couple things about your stint. You know, you've done 13 years. There's this, this, you've done a good enough job. Like you said, you've outlasted what you thought you would do. Um, so you're, I just, so you're by, by 10 years, yeah. by 10 years, I really think that, I think an institution is an institution. Right. It's not its CEO. It's right. not one guy's vision. It's not one person's deal. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like Jobs like mine ought to turn over sure. about every ten years. Right. So, as you said, you're right. I'm I'm living on borrowed right. borrowed time. Yeah. I mean, but, uh, but what I was going to say, I mean, you've accomplished so much. But is there anything that you, I mean, a couple specific things you can point to that the Alpine Club's done in the last decade, um, or that maybe you, you know, spearheaded that you could just be like, yeah, this is sort of, you know, the Phil Powers legacy once they do kick you to the curb. Well, I, 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 my short answer is no. There's okay. no Phil Powers legacy right. because none of what has happened in the last 13 mm-hmm. years was done by one person. Sure. It took my board. Uh, it took great advice. It took, I've got a wonderful staff, especially now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say that I did pay a lot of attention to building a good board mm-hmm. and and cultivating great volunteers to participate in this with me. So I'll take credit for being sort of in the middle of it. Sure. But if you want to look back and, and think about some highlights, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in the late 90s, uh, bolts were banned in lots of wilderness areas. Mm-hmm. And the the concept that bolts or fixed anchors in general might be allowed in wilderness was on the table as a question mark. Mm -hmm. And we began negotiating with the National Park Service and the Department of Interior and and Forest Service too, way back then. And it wasn't until very recently that the director of the National Park Service came out and said, 
climbing is a legitimate use of wilderness. Right. And if that is true, fixed anchors must be allowed. So, you know, there you have kind of a public policy win or event that took 15 or 20 years. Sure. And, but that happened, you know, on our watch here at the American Alpine Club. Or we're taking our hut system, which was just one quite beautiful ranch at the base of the Grand Teton mm-hmm. and growing it into six huts around the country that allow us to negotiate for better rates for our members around the world. You know, opening the Rumney campground and the Gunks campground and the New River campground and the Snowbird hut in Alaska and buying the Waco Rock Ranch. You know, those kinds of rather large investments mm-hmm. are things that I think we're all proud of that we did together at the American Alpine Club in this sort of decade-long period. Mm-hmm. Uh, creating this education program, I'm convinced that 10 years from now, when you think of the American Alpine Club, you will think of the body of, of individuals who sort of oversee climbing instruction in the United States. Not mm-hmm. deliver it all. Right. Lots of people will be delivering it. YMCA's and Boy Scouts and regional clubs and Mazamas and Mountaineers, uh, they'll be delivering it, but they'll all be delivering it slightly better because the instructors will be certified and they'll be sort of consistent in what they're teaching. That, I think, will be a legacy that we can look back on proudly 10 years from now, but it's only just begun. Okay. And uh, is there is the AMGA somehow affiliated with you guys at all? AMGA and the American Alpine Club work very closely right. together. Uh, the AMGA really is a model for where we're headed. Mm-hmm. What they have done for professional mountain guides sure. is similar to what we are beginning to do for volunteer leaders, mm-hmm. which is, let's face it, the more affordable and, and more prevalent way that people learn to climb in the United States. Yeah, especially sort of basic rock climbing skills, mm-hmm. certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what you know, AAC, uh, and you've talked about it just here, like we, we always use this word community. I've used it on the podcast all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've created sort of our own community in a way around this podcast that people who listen avidly and, you know, and then personally, I want to move a little bit to the personal side of your climbing and who you are. But what, what do you think, when you're down there smiling in that room we were just in with all those people um, of multiple generations from, from you know, younger than Margo even in there all the way up to, to uh, um, I mean, there was a, wasn't there a, what is it, centagenarian in the room? Yeah, yeah. Gail, Gail Bates <laughs> yeah, was so, here today, yeah. sharp as a tack right. at 102. Okay. First so, employee at the American Alpine Club back in the 60s. So personally, you know, you've, you've chosen this life from a long time ago to this now to be in this community. What is it that, you know, you tell people outside the community maybe about why it's so great to just be, uh, live your life within the climbing world? Well, um, for me, it has been my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, grew up in Oklahoma and found a way to learn to climb even there and made my way to Wyoming and started working for the National Outdoor Leadership School. And, and climbing has been the guiding force of my life. It's mm-hmm. been either my job or my avocation or where I spend my time. Uh, today is how I spend my time with my kids. Uh, we climb together. Uh, the great friendships of my life, uh, uh, the great, the great 
opportunities in my life mm -hmm. have all come from climbing. So for me, it is my life. Uh, I think we all lived through, I lived through, maybe you lived through some really fun and raucous times as a rock climber in the American West. Mm -hmm. You know, living with your friends, traveling from place to place, uh, climbing hard, uh, uh, partying a little bit, you know, having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, but today, when I meet young people and, well, not even that young, but climbing has changed. Climbing is a place where people really focus their attention and live healthy lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And so today when I talk to non-climbers about, about climbing, I remind them that these gyms across the nation are, have become anchors for just really healthy, wonderful lifestyles for young people. You know, you, you don't go uh, out to the bar after work if, if you're a young person person in downtown Denver, you go to the rock gym, right. you know, and you, and you go to your yoga class and you take care of your body and you pay attention to how you, uh, manage your mind. And it's, when I look at my kids and, and people like Margot and, and other young people in the climbing world, it, it really has become an anchor for a wonderful way to live. Mm -hmm. And I think it was that way when we grew up too, but it's even more that well, yeah, way today. Yeah. I mean, we certainly weren't health conscious in the same sense of of approaching it. I mean, I, at least I wasn't in my cohort, wasn't, you know, looking at it really even as a terribly athletic in the sense of like, you know, training and getting up and, you know, you went climbing and then yeah. the next day you went climbing again. And then yeah, back in the my, back in my D, we, yeah. day, we went climbing. I was either <laughs> teaching Knowles courses right. or guiding for Colorado Mountain School mm -hmm. or, or climbing. Mm -hmm. And all of that involved climbing, yeah. being outside, being healthy. So by definition, if you will, I was, I was a healthy person and, yeah. and active and, and, uh, you know, relatively strong climber in the world. But uh, it wasn't until, for example, Todd Skinner moved to Lander that I started to wake up to the fact that, wow, you could train and you sure. could even get stronger. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was one of these guys that, at least in the United States, sort of ushered in that idea in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we you know, backer ladders in Joshua Tree and mm -hmm. training facilities in Lander and, you know, uh, it it was uh, a lifetime it was infectious. Of bad elbows. Yeah, a lifetime of bad elbows. <laughs> but it was infectious. Right, you know right. his his energy and right. and the concept that you could get kind of scientific about it yeah. and get better. Well, and also he was a living example of be, you could get better. You yeah. could climb really hard. You know. So going to your personal climbing, you know, I kind of looking at your highlights of you know whatever's in your resume as it, as it were. Um, you know, you went. All directions, including getting really into mountaineering, mm -hmm. including high altitude mountaineering. Mm -hmm. What year about did you start climbing? I I started climbing in about 1977 mm -hmm. back in Oklahoma, but really didn't get active as a climber till 80, 81. Mm -hmm. And did you go to Knowles as a student, or was it something I, you I found took a, differently? I took a winter course right. at Knowles yeah. uh, in 1979. Okay. And... Uh, kind of talked my instructors into recommending me for the instructor's course. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I was really prepared for it, but I, I saw something I loved and wanted to pursue and kind of finagled my way in and ended up 
uh, taking an instructor's course in 81, I think, and starting wor started working for Knowles. Right. And so that was my summer job, if you will, during college. And then the summer after college, I went back to work and never left. And was that in, in Lander? Yeah, that was in Lander. And of course, I traveled the world. I it was a great job. I right. ended up being their chief mountaineering instructor and training staff, and uh, I had you know ready-made climbing partners all over the place. But but back then, and I think I think I've lived through an interesting time in climbing. Mm -hmm. Back then, I believed, for whatever reason, that the apex of climbing activity was big mountains. Okay, that was going to sort of be my question, right? Yeah. Whether that, that came That's, out of Nozer before. I mean, I, what do I really love? I really love rock climbing, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, nice maybe that's because I'm older and right, I don't right. want to, you know, carry a heavy pack or, or sleep out in the snow. But I think, really, it's truly my passion. But back then, rock climbing was something we did when we weren't in the mountains. Mm -hmm. It was something that we did to get better. It wasn't really the end game that people see it as today or even I see it as for myself today. Right. So, so you know, if I had it to do over again, maybe I'd skip the high mountains right. and rock climb all the time. But on the other hand, I had some extraordinary experiences traveling the world mm -hmm. with close friends, uh, mostly to Pakistan or Alaska, sometimes South America. But God, those were special times where you'd really work, as we heard today, from the 78K2 team, really work together to accomplish things that you just never would be able to do alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, going back to this idea of a resume, um, K2, we just saw a presentation on that, and that obviously stands out on your resume too, in terms, and you, you've climbed K2 without oxygen. Mm -hmm. uh, what year was that? 93, okay. I, I went in 1990 with a group of friends. Mm -hmm. We failed, Right. Uh, good trip. Um, just, you know, rough weather, yeah. and, and uh, by the time the weather got good enough to try, we were kind of spent. Mm -hmm. uh, went back in 1993 with a joint sort of Canadian-American expedition led by Stacy Allison and, and managed to climb the mountain, mm -hmm. um, I think in good style. Uh, didn't use oxygen, didn't place any fixed lines, um, you know. Placed some camps and acclimatized sure. and then ended up climbing it kind of round trip in three days, two days mm -hmm. up, one day down. Uh, my partner on that summit bid, Dan Culver, one of my partners, died on the descent. So that's, you know, that really hangs with me as, um, you know, I say on the one hand, we climbed it in good style, no, but we lost someone. Right. So that's a, 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 that's a, that will always be... Uh, in my mind, uh, the main factor in that trip because uh, we we lost a human being, sure. you know, and that person had a life and a family and a relationships in the world. So, uh, and, and yeah, K two, I'm proud of it, and it opened some doors for me. But it it, it uh, on the other hand is just you know one of many wonderful episodes uh, that I've been able to kind of partake of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, that was actually going to be the next part of the question is, you know, those within mountaineering, you know, those names, they just pop out and that's mm -hmm. what... And, it's easy. And, and I was right? curious about that as to whether or not where it fit in your own 
sort of mind of 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 your experiences in Europe. But I mean, it, it, if if there was this lost climber on that, I mean, it has to. You have to be. I would imagine be somewhat ambivalent a little bit about yeah. it, it's, its meaning and whether or not you know it was some some sort of uh, experience to to put on a highlight list or was it something well to, no to, people put it on the highlight yeah, list right because yeah. it's memorable it's noticeable people can understand that that's a big mm-hmm. deal um but i'm far more fond of some of the other routes that i did uh a big grade six rock climb on look Brock on the mm-hmm. biafo glacier in pa- pakistan or uh, a big north face route uh on denali which we called the Washburn Face at the time, off of the Peters Glacier. And as I start to recite those things, it becomes clear to me that I was only able to go to some of those really special places, do some of those really special routes that I just mentioned, because of my partners. Mm -hmm. And really because of one partner, a guy named Greg Collins, Uh, from Lander back then and from Victor, Idaho now, um, you know, just one of the great talents of, of this generation and still climbing hard, still skiing steep, still a creative mind in, in the mountains. Uh, and I will always look back on my own achievements as things that were only possible because of guys like him. You know, you talked about community a minute ago, mm-hmm. and community comes in lots of forms, right? Kind of writ large at the Crag and Classics, mm-hmm. but it also comes, you know, in the form of partnership. Right. Kind and just the, the special. The special I mean, twosome or threesome right. or foursome that really uh, get some traction together. Mm-hmm. And you guys still climb together? We do. Yeah. Not very much. Right. Not very often. We're in very different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg is still very active. I'm still very active. But I climb with my kids, and right. I climb in the front range, and uh, he's still up in Wyoming. But, you know, a couple of years ago, I called him up, and I said, hey, let's go climbing. Now, Greg is is a motivated guy. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, uh, okay, show up at Teton Village with a mountain bike, a pair of skis, a rope, and a rack. And so, you know, he had an adventure plan. Right, we right. were going to ride our bikes out till the snow began and ski up to Rock Springs Buttress, and he was going to put in a new route. So, you know, we, you don't just say, let's go climbing, and go Greg, Greg's going Greg's right, to right, have right, an agenda. Right. Yeah, yeah. How'd that go? It was a great day. Awesome. Yeah. It was great. I was a little more tired than he was, I yeah, think, I by reckon. the end. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting after it all the time. Yeah. Um, so another uh, sort of exceptional part of your life has been educating, uh, you know, your capacity in that. I think it goes on, you know, directing the American Alpine Club because you guys are are talking about that education principle mm-hmm. that you're going to be moving forward. But what do you think drew your drew you into that world? Again, you make you make choices as a climber how you're going to sort of pursue it. Mm-hmm. What's going to be the platforms to get you to where you want to go? And one of them is guiding and teaching, mm-hmm. uh, especially Knowles. You know, those guys often are are very known for doing big mountain climbs on their off time and teaching and, you know, just living this life that's basically always in the mountains, mm-hmm. whether they're working and, and then they're going on expeditions. That's been, I think, the tradition there anyway for a lot of the Nolseys that I know. So what was it about that, you know, versus just being a climbing bum or banging nails to go climbing or, or w- whatever else it was? Yeah, I, you know, for me, uh, I kind of fell in love with that 
group of people mm-hmm. uh, in Lander, Wyoming. It became this uh, welcoming place where I had uh, friends that I could work with and friends that I could play with and kind of ready-made partners, as I said before. Um, I have extraordinary ad- admiration for guys like Mark Ritchie and Steve Swenson, who had, or Jim Wickwire that we heard from today, or Lou Reichardt that we heard from today, who had full-on non-climbing careers mm-hmm. and still maintained a cutting-edge climbing life. Right. I mean, I think that that is a real trick. Raise a family, do a job that has nothing to do with climbing, and still put in the time to be at the top of the game in climbing. I think that that's a real trick. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it almost seems impossible. I know. Frankly. I know. So for me, <laughs> uh, that the fact that you know, maybe I wasn't climbing at my hardest when I was mm-hmm. teaching at Knowles, but I was at least staying in shape right. and and practicing. And I think teaching is actually a really wonderful way to hone your own skill. How many people that aren't teachers practice self-arrest or practice uh, various techniques? Well, when you're teaching, you're practicing right. all the time because you're demonstrating and doing. Um, and teaching for me did become something that I loved uh i loved sort of coming up with the phrase that made someone's light eyes light up that they understood it sure you know and i loved introducing young people to the out of doors over my time at Knowles, i had thousands and thousands of students and um the I'm, i'm really happy and proud of the fact that i was able to introduce that many people to this wonderful world we heard today mm-hmm. uh lou whitaker remind us that it's a beautiful planet let's take care of it and we also know that you take care of what you love and the way you fall in love it with it is to be introduced to it and see it and become comfortable there and so that part of teaching has meant a lot to me mm-hmm. and you know now i own jacksonville mountain guides up in the tetons and you know that Guide service, if you will, is a really teaching-oriented place. It's about education. It's about introducing people to the alpine environment and getting them to be comfortable there and appreciate it, as opposed to just climb the Grand Teton and go home. Right. So you worked at Knowles. You've worked for the American Alpine Club. You now own Jackson Hole. I've owned Jackson Hole Mountain Guides for 20 years. For 20 years, okay. So, I mean... With my partner, Bob. It's like Hans. literally possible. I used to joke when I was at Joshua Tree. I used to guide out there in, in L.A. And on the weekends, I'd see like, you know, 20 people I had shown how to like build anchors or whatever. Yeah. You know, and I would always joke. I'm like, I'm personally responsible for crowding this crack. Like, <laughs> I, I, you can but, argue that I've made my, made my mistakes in that category, no, too. But, you know, joking aside, I mean, it sounds like you can like trace yourself into educating i mean thousands maybe tens of thousands of climbers i wouldn't well indirectly maybe i mean indirectly yeah Yeah. but thousands directly right yeah right so that's pretty awesome i mean it's pretty awesome yeah and you know i still have students and clients that that i communicate with and that i know i you know took my family to france last year and you know met old students all across europe i take them to the american west i make meet old students all across the american west um yeah i i i'm i'm quite fond of i don't think i don't think that i i contributed to crowding our mountains no, I, know. I'm just I think <laughs> i contributed to stewardship of our mountains sure to people falling in love 
right. and therefore voting for the environment and caring for our mountains and speaking up for public lands. Yeah, and that's I, the, the necessary flip of the coin there uh, from my joke about crowding the crags. But yeah, you just you realize the disconnection that so many people in the, the world in the United States uh, have from you know, what's going on in the environment. And, you know, it's, it's demoralizing to think that these tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people in some places just they have no idea what whatever it is they're doing is causing out in the real world or in the in the natural world. That's true. And and so many, for example, Americans that don't even understand the the wonderful places that we all own together. Right. You know, that young person, you know, down here in downtown Boston that may have never been out into the wilderness is just as much an owner of those public lands as you or I. Right. And I want those people to be able to take advantage of this wonderful treasure in the United States. And, and you know, coming back to that public policy thing, um, is, the, is the American Alpine Club in on this fight right now with, uh, with you know, Bears Ears and the other monuments being rescinded? We are fighting right. because Bears Ears matters to climbers. Mm-hmm. But I think at the American Alpine Club, our tendency is to take a little bit of a longer view, uh, to try to preserve a conversation Mm -hmm. rather than call it a fight, Mm -hmm. uh, and to really be willing to compromise if necessary. I think we care about the landscape, not just the climbs, but the entire ecosystem, uh, and I think right now the great tragedy in our country is that the conversation we so much want to be a part of is not available in the way it's been in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's hard to cross the lines and talk to people who might have a different point of view these days. Mm -hmm. And that's been frustrating for me. So let me ask you about your own education. You know, you, you've, you've been a, a teacher, the, the director of the mountaineering sections of Knowles. I mean, someone who's like super versed, uh, has everything on lockdown. You mentioned how... Wrote the, wrote the textbook at Knowles. Yeah, literally, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you've literally written the book. Um, and what you said about teaching is, you know, it, it, it resonated with me because I was a guide for years and taught particularly like I would think about rescue mm-hmm. you know self-rescue mm-hmm. courses mm-hmm. And, and my girlfriend now is always telling me like you need to teach me how to do all this stuff you know she has a little like most climbers she has a little bit of knowledge mm-hmm. but and then but when I sit down and I'm like man if I sat down and just did a clinic on it I'm like could I even do it at this point yeah. like as well as you know when I was teaching it at least you know weekly or whatever like yeah I was I was a machine but now I mean, I could probably draw it all back enough to get me out of trouble, but yeah, I don't have it on lockdown anymore. I would say I'm still pretty conversant mm-hmm. as a teacher, mm-hmm. uh, but let's face facts. Mm-hmm. I mean, the standard of teaching ability in this category has mm-hmm. gone way up okay. in the United States. Right. So while I think I'm still in the game that right. way... Uh, I know that Ron Funderburg, her, who works for the American Alpine Club, mm-hmm. or Rob Hess, my partner at Jacksonville Mountain Guides, mm-hmm. are a level of magnitude beyond where I'm at as an actual teacher these right. days. Right. And uh, back to your comment about yeah. your girlfriend, 
you know, my family want to learn those things too. Uh, and I feel comfortable teaching that, and I do. But I also know that they need to hear it from more than just me. Sure. There are different ways to get taught, and there are different learning styles. And, you know, I've had a really wonderful time um, putting my family in touch with other guides. You know, Madeline Sorkin has taken my family out and taught them how to climb. They, they already know how to climb. They already know this stuff, but she teaches it again, and they learn it in a little different way. Right. And they might get a little different kind of confidence. So I'm a big fan of of hiring a guide. Yeah, totally. No, and I, I used to get, you know, even friends of mine whose who's significant others, whether men or women, were being sent to me because, you know, sometimes teaching your significant other something is not the best way to preserve a relationship. I agree. Um, it can work, but, uh, <clears throat> and so far I haven't real. I need to sit down with Steph or, or, or send her, or not send her, but convince her to do a course. Um, on this stuff, but but what I was in, we can do a trade. I'll teach Steph. You teach Sarah. Oh, it's not, <laughs> yeah, I'll have to brush up though. <laughs> She's in better hands, I think. Uh, Steph would be. But what I wanted to ask you about because it's I'm I'm curious about it, and I was aware of it is that you know you you were in an accident just out climbing for the day, and the and the reason I bring this up is because you know I'm just always warning people about uh, the the letting your attention go and not not taking care of your situation and we always are you know poor lynn hill always gets thrown into this mix because she one time didn't tie her knot and, mm-hmm. and basically, didn't finish her yeah. knot. yeah so she's always our example oh yeah even lynn hill even lynn mm-hmm. hill you know to give her a break you know i wanted to ask you about this after all these years um of of being in, a, in an accident where you know mistakes on your part were made and, mm-hmm. and what happened and maybe we could learn real quick from it about you know what you learned from it now as an educator. Yeah, well, uh, just to quickly tell the story, mm-hmm. it was a simple sport climbing environment up in Clear Creek Canyon, mm-hmm. just a couple of miles from my office, and uh, I had led a pitch to put up a top rope for people, and people weren't ready to climb, so I decided to top rope the other side of the rope. So I was on a top rope, mm-hmm. climbed this little roof problem and got to the anchor. And for whatever reason, my belayer was under the b- assumption that I was going to repel mm-hmm. um, and maybe rearrange the climb or something like that. And she thinks that she heard me say, belay off. Mm-hmm. Um, I also did some things that might have given her clues to reinforce that. Sure. I down climbed a little bit to rearrange part of the uh, other rope so it would be in a better position for the next climber. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that might have felt like me pulling up rope to start to create a rappel. Uh, But for whatever reason, she believed I was going to rappel and took me off belay. So when I leaned back on the rope, it was unanchored. Mm -hmm. It was empty. And I felt to the deck about 75 feet um there may have been a little friction because the rope rope, was running through some carabiners um but i hit pretty hard (laughs) yeah i broke my back in several places and broke most of my ribs Mm -hmm. and broke my arm and had a big diaphragmatic tear through which my uh internal organs kind of all swept up into my left lung cavity so lots of internal organ damage that was completely repaired, uh, great doctors, uh, back is completely heal- healed, there's one fusion, mm-hmm. uh, ribs hurt for a while, um, 
but I'm fine. Right. I'm, I'm about an inch shorter. And I like to say I, I didn't really have an inch to give, but no. <laughs> <laughs> but there it went. There it went. Um, but, you know, looking back on it, yeah, it's simple for her for me to say she shouldn't have taken me off play. Right. But that's it takes two to tango. Mm-hmm. These accidents do not happen in a vacuum. Uh, as Jim Wickwire was saying in his presentation this morning, I, I was noticing that the little mistakes were accumulating. Mm-hmm. Um I did not pre-tell her what I was going to do. I come from a history where the leader just leads and the leader deals with what he or she sees as it comes, kind of that trad climbing background. Mm -hmm. And so since you never knew what you were going to do, you never told your belayer what you were going to do because it was an adventure. You know, you were, you were, they were going to keep you on belay until something else happened. Um, But in this case, I was climbing with someone much more novice than I, and I owed it to her to give her a clue as to what was going to happen. I owed it to her to say, you know, I'm going to have you lower me when I get to the anchor. So I think what we've learned is that communication uh, is even more important than it was in the past, Mm -hmm. that we have such a diversity of people coming to climbing, Mm -hmm. such a diversity of partners that we might climb with, that we owe it to each other to have a deeper commitment to communication than we've ever had in the past. Yeah, that actually, you, you started to say that, and it, you know, we came, I think we probably, the both of us came from a time, me a decade later than you did, but, you know, where there was a homogeny, I think, in, in a little bit of technique and attitude towards climbing, because it was all from trad climbing. Mm-hmm. We hadn't encountered sport climbing yet. Uh, go up, be lowered down. Mm-hmm. Like that didn't really exist. So it is that diversity that's kind of causing the problems. All the different streams mm-hmm. coming together from all these different places. And the assumptions yeah, that come and the from assumptions, those. Right, yeah. right. Because, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't have, you wouldn't have had any issue because you wouldn't have be getting lowered from something in 1985, probably, because Mm-mm. you just didn't do that. No. Yeah. Yo-yoing was bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I guess I kind of just wanted to, again, like, but take I will the pressure say, off a of Lynn and that, you know, it Take happens. the pressure off yeah, a Lynn. It happens. Put it on me. Yeah. Uh, it, it happens. It happens to people who write textbooks right. on climbing right. and are mountain right. guides right. and have done, you know, thousands and thousands of feet of climbing in their life. Uh, I'm an example. And I want to also say that, you know, I've recovered. Mm -hmm. What happened to me was physical. Uh, You know, what happened to my belayer was emotional. Mm -hmm. I mean, to drop someone and to be involved in that and to have all the feelings that come, that's tough stuff. So uh, I really, I really feel for people who've been involved in things like that. And, the, you know, the sad thing is that we keep seeing so many of the same accidents. Mm-hmm. We keep seeing people repel off the end of their rope. We keep seeing similar uh, accidents in the... I mean, someone fell to the deck in the climbing gym last night. I know. And, yeah. and um, that's where this education program sure. starts to really have meaning for me because I don't think we're going to ever end accidents completely but boy we sure owe it to each other to try yeah well and you know there there's a pitch you know you get you're you were talking about your message with the american Public club the pitch the product the the idea of of you know what you give for for what the people give you as Mm -hmm. their dues or whatever and 
it's just, you know, this idea of trying to consolidate education. Um, it's good if you're not in the American Alpine Club. The fact that the American Alpine Club is out there doing that is good for you because you're at the cliff with these people. And when these things happen, you know, I've joked on the show, it's like if I see like sketchy people doing sketchy stuff, if it's like imminent death, then I go and try to maybe intervene. But if it's just sketchiness, you know, it's time for us to go away to the other cliff because mm -hmm. I get that out. And so I think that like as a pitch about joining the AAC or, or supporting what you guys do, it's it's that. It's this idea that for for the good of everybody, you know, you have this mission to try to get people to a safe ish place yeah. in you know, I, you know, I I used to kind of proselytize a lot about joining, you know, right. gotta join the club. Right, gotta right. join you know, it was kind of what what was going on. Yeah, you had to. Uh, but what Really, I mean, that was my job, I guess. Yeah. But what I would say today is join or don't join. Live your life, <laughs> right? You're, you are who you are. Sure. You, 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 pick your, you pick your agenda. Uh, maybe you're uh, working in politics. Maybe you care about climate change. Uh, but if you're a climber, whether you join or not, be thankful for those 20,000 people who did join and make sure that this good work gets done. Be thankful for those people that pay dues to the access fund and support that. Be thankful. Whether you do it or not yourself, recognize that there are people volunteering their time and money to make climbing better. folks thanks for listening and thanks to phil for sitting down getting that one done in between some appointments that he had he was a very busy man at the event i also want to thank the american alpine club and the staff that phil has accrued there is amazing a slew of very capable women are running that show right now actually i know there's some other dudes that work there but i didn't really see him doing anything um, anyway, I also want to thank Ashley from the Sharp End Podcast for letting me be involved in her show. And if you guys haven't checked that out, go check it out, Sharp End Podcast, and particularly the episode with uh, Quinn Brett that we recorded at the at the event. A really deep, good interview there by Ashley, and uh, thanks again for letting me be involved. All right, folks, of course, thanks to you for listening, and please be safe out there. Spring's rolling in. If you haven't been climbing all winter, you're dusting it off. Make sure and be double, triple, quadruple vigilant about safety. We heard what happened to Phil at the end of that one. Don't let that happen to you. Talk to your partner. Make sure everybody knows what's going on. And of course, check your knot.